Welcome to Rap Stories, a show where I get the background on some of my favorite albums of all time by the artists who made them. I'm your host, David Dennis Jr., and today I'm joined by the legendary MC Light to discuss her album, Light as a Rock. You know what I was doing when I was 12 years old? I was eating those damn Hot Pockets, watching Toonami after school, and trying to live out my failed hoop dreams at the YMCA. You know what I wasn't doing when I was 12? I wasn't writing lyrics that would change the course of hip-hop forever. Because that's exactly what 12-year-old MC Light was doing. By 12, the Brooklyn native had already written Cram to Understand You, a definitive track about the crack epidemic. She'd used her formative teenage years to put together the lyrics that would become her debut and game-changing album, Light as a Rock, an album that shaped rap music forever. The album came out when I was barely old enough to walk, but by the time I was 12, it was clear that MC Light was one of the greatest MCs of all time. My first introduction to Light was 1993's Roughneck, the Grammy-nominated hit single that added a new word to our everyday vocabulary. When I got older and dug into the crates for Light as a Rock, I learned just how groundbreaking her debut was. MC Light had this confidence and swagger of a seasoned vet even though she was just a teenager forging her own path. Whenever anyone asks me about the most influential rap albums of all time, I don't hesitate to put Light as a Rock on the list. It's an album of pride, bravery, lyricism, and flyness, and one that only MC Light herself could pull off. And here to discuss one of the most foundational albums in hip-hop, the first lady of rap, a pioneer, three decades standing, the actress and philanthropist, the one and only MC Light. MC Light, welcome to Rap Stories. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for that uh, that introduction. That was great. You know, I was a little nervous with the legend here watching me read that, uh, watching me say that. So I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> When was the last time you listened to Light as a Rock in full? Probably hmm. since it was made. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, when you anyone does an album, they are listening and listening and listening and listening and listening and listening. Mm. And then you do a couple of videos, and that's really how you learn the words by heart mm-hmm. through the repetition of it all. But I don't think I've listened to it from front to back in decades. Wow. So do you think you could, like be one of those people who did a full album concert like from front to back if you had to now or would you need to do some studying oh i would definitely have to do some studying <laughs> okay i mean from the light as a rock album like i said there are songs from that album that we did videos for mm-hmm. and they're also very popular songs that i can't leave the stage unless i perform and on that particular album it's paper thin light as a rock Sometimes it's a blur as to mm-hmm. what songs were on what records because mm-hmm. 88 and 89 were back to back. So Light as a Rock and Eyes on This were like very, very quick. So where were you when you were actually going through the process of writing for this album? What was sort of going through your mind as you were crafting what would become Light as a Rock? Oh, goodness. Well, a lot of that album was already written. It was stories and poems and stuff in a book that I, a composition book that I had with me that I would carry around. 
uh, MC Light Like Swinging I did to a track that Prince Paul had given me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as for Paper Thin and Light as a Rock and a few others, they were already written. So we didn't have to, we didn't have to think about the verses. We were just thinking about the hooks. Like, as a matter of fact, Paper Thin doesn't have a hook at all mm -hmm. because it just was like, okay, what are we going to put there? You know, but for the most part, I was just thinking of talking to my own generation, mm -hmm. telling them, you know, the do's and don'ts on how to live. And at the same time. You know, up to prove that I was the biggest and the baddest at five, five or <laughs> right. whatever height, <laughs> you know, uh, trying to convince the world that this little girl coming out of Brooklyn was tough. Mm -hmm. What was it about the the toughness in particular that was important for you to con convey for this album? Oh, goodness. I was coming out first out of the gate, uh, representing Brooklyn, which is rough in itself. You can't have any doubt mm -hmm. in hip hop. Uh, today you have rappers who are, uh, you know, who wear their hearts on their sleeves and they can speak of mistakes made and things that they could have done better that they didn't. But back then that wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. Everything you did, whether wrong or right, had to be right. Everything you said had to be the hardest, the coldest, the flyest. There was no room for any type of hesitation at mm -hmm. all. Actually, this album sounds like kind of vulnerable to me. Maybe like where you were in your career and just thinking about it, a, a young woman like making this album. But there's like when I think about a crammed understanding, it seems like a vulnerable album, even though you're being pretty, pretty tough. Would you, you know, would you agree with me or do you? Vulnerable in the sense of just honest, mm -hmm. you know, so yeah, even yeah. if I crammed understand you was a fictitious piece of work, it still had things in there that were very personal to me, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of Brooklyn and Empire roller skating rink and, you know, baseball hats and, you know, just the, just all of the things surrounding the story that made it real for me. Mm -hmm. So although it may feel, you know, vulnerable in some spots, that probably simply is because I'm a woman. It wasn't mm -hmm. intended to. I was okay. supposed to <laughs> I was supposed <laughs> to give off a different impression. Uh-huh. So when the album actually comes out, where are you when the album hits the streets? What is that night like when this finally comes out? I don't know if I can get into that moment i mm. do remember working when i got the call that the album that we had received a record deal mm. um, with atlantic records i remember that day it was cold but sunny new york city and i had a pager and i had mm. to stop off to a, a payphone and make the call and my manager said okay you can quit we have a deal where were you working I had graduated six months early and I was in, enrolled to attend Norfolk State University in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And during that six months, I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to get a job. Because I had already had a job since I was 14 at Chi Chi's Mexican Restaurant. <laughs> okay. I was a hostess, right? Uh -huh. Once you start getting that money, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Okay, now I need some real work. You know, I got to do some real work here. So I joined the co-op program in high school. I worked at Bear Stearns at the World Trade Center. I worked mm. at an, another corporate traveling place called Fur Travel. But I wanted um, for that six months to get into something where I can make some money and save some money. So I became a foot messenger 
for a messaging company. Mm-hmm. And so I learned every nook and cranny of New York City. You know, coming from Brooklyn, the only place I went to in Manhattan really was Broadway to see plays mm-hmm. and my grandmother's house on 138th in Amsterdam across the street from City College. But outside of that, I didn't get to Manhattan. So to actually work there and move around and from South Street Seaport all the way up to a hundred and whatever street, I knew it from east to west. So wait, we got I know we got some some folks who only know email and Instagram and what does a foot messenger do? <laughs> <laughs> Help us out. Deliver packages. Okay. <laughs> Deliver packages. As a matter of fact, I remember I only worked with them for about four months from mm-hmm. from a January to about April. But I do remember my manager at that time, he did a lot of database work for Eastern Airlines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Taking you way back. You probably right. don't even know. About I've Eastern never, Airlines. I don't know anybody Eastern Airlines. Right. It was an airlines called Eastern Airlines. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he was really tech and he had a fax machine. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh my God, here I am delivering the very packages that soon will be null and void because this fax machine <laughs> is on its way. Uh-huh. I did that, and I remember we had released a single. We had Mm -hmm. released I Cram to Understand You. And I was going to deliver a package, and when I walked into the mailroom, the guy was like, yo, and he calls his guy from the back, and he's like, that's MC Light. And I'm like, oh, like how the hell did they know it was me? And come to find out, right on magazine had published a photo Mm -hmm. of K-Rock and I in our little blue satin jackets mm-hmm. that said our names on them. That's what I remember from Light as a Rock. So what does your life look like if you don't get that page about being signed to Atlantic? Oh, Norfolk State University, mm-hmm. majoring in communications, probably doing voiceover, which is okay. what I always <laughs> uh-huh. wanted to do anyway. <laughs> oh, okay. That was always your, your dream anyway. Yeah, it was the very reason I was headed to Norfolk State because they had a great communications program. So, you know, you get signed and, you know, being signed is sort of one thing, right? But actually being greenlit to make an album is another thing. Like, how did you get to the point of convincing the label to put out, you know, the first solo female full length rap album? Like, how did we get from being signed to them agreeing to put that out? Right. Well, when they signed, the record was already done. Okay. Because I was with First Priority Music first. Mm-hmm. And so they also did an all-around deal with with about three of the artists that were on First Priority Music, and I was just one of them. Mm-hmm. And so they did an overall deal, but the record was already done. So there wasn't really any convincing that we needed to do. Most, I think, they may have done at that time is probably paid for a photo shoot for the mm-hmm. album cover. But outside of that, the music was it was already done. Mm. And so they just hear it and say, let's put this out. Or was there any sort of. Yeah, they do a deal and then they sit and discuss the best time to release these records. Mm -hmm. From there, it was all up to um, promotion and marketing of all of the different departments. Just like now or then to now is very similar in they wanted you to have some type of name already, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like having done something, having put some music out, get some feedback back. Okay, this is going to be great. Okay, we have some visuals. Okay, they're just plugging into something that is already moving. Mm -hmm. And then, 
you know, putting all of their power into it, which matters. And today it's like, you know, record labels don't want to sign an artist unless they've got, you know, hundreds and thousands of followers right. and uh, engagement on social media. So it's kind of the same world. So you start rapping at 12 years old and you continued obviously into your formative years. And technically you're a teenager, not a lot of life experience. What was it like being famous essentially at 17 and maintaining that fame over the course of 30 years? What has it sort of been like? You know, I remember once upon a time, I did not want the fame. When you're young, you have young fans. Mm -hmm. And my goodness, they drove me bananas. They followed me everywhere. It just, it was a lot for someone of my age to be able to handle. Mm -hmm. So I remember one time saying, oh my God, like if I could just not be recognized, you know, and with that was an escape plan of moving away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, taking acting classes and so that I could move more into TV and film. Before long, I probably became unrecognizable to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Because when, you know, let's just face it, still to this day, New York is the Mecca. Right. It's where you will see thousands upon thousands of people walking on the street. It's just a place where connectivity happens. Mm -hmm. And as a musician, it's a place that you should go and you mm. should frequent. And most people that come from somewhere else, they do a little bit of time in New York just so they can get the flavor, the nuance, the speed, the pace at which we move because it's a whole different cadence in New York City. And I needed to get out of it. Was there like one fan moment that did it for you or there was just like a crazy, there's some, you know, crazy Yeah, fan it was a fan moment. I was in a restaurant and I had gone to the bathroom. Mm. Matter of fact, I was in Philly and I heard the people come into the bathroom and I can hear them on the outside of the stall. Let's get a picture when she comes out. Uh, you know, and uh, it just was like, oh, my God, in the bathroom, y'all are going to follow yeah. me. It was a big turn off for a minute. And that's not to say I don't love my fans. You know, my fans right. are grown now. So, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, many of them and the ones that are younger know me through BET, mm -hmm. you know, know me through their parents or their, you know, brothers, older brothers, older sisters. And there's just a little more reasoning with their right. fanaticism, mm -hmm. <laughs> if that's a word. Uh -huh. So it's like, oh, it's you. Great. It's not like, <laughs> let me chase your ass down. Right. You know? Yeah. That's unsanitary. They got to wait outside the whole bathroom or something. Yeah. It was that would lot. make me want to run away also. That's yeah. You know, one thing is you set the tone for a lot of how female rappers presented themselves, especially, you know, right after you came out. Everyone name drops you as being their inspiration, being female rap artists. You forced a path that wasn't there, as I mentioned. Was there a blueprint that you look to stand out as a solo female artist? I know you talked a lot about Salt and Pepper as a group, but specifically, like, solo thing is sort of different. Who were you looking to for that sort of inspiration, that strength of how to present yourself? You know, the very first woman I ever heard on the microphone was Shy Rock. Mm -hmm. And she was part of a group, but she still held her own. And then, of course, there was, you know, quite a few of them. There was Shantae. There was Sweet Tea, there was Sparky D, like all of those artists, Pebbly Poo, they were all solo female rap artists. I don't think I gave much thought to that, though. Mm -hmm. 
because I was part of a group mm-hmm. and it didn't work. She wound up going to Clara Barton. You know, she went to Clara Barton. She became a nurse. And for me, it might have been something different had I not gone to audition the night that I went. Mm-hmm. Because of that, I became a solo artist and things just kind of, you know, had a little flow to it, but it wasn't something I put a lot of thought into. Well, let's talk about this audition story uh, where you're this sort of fork in the road audition story. Can you tell me how that night rolled? Yeah, I I had wanted to rap. I was rapping. I was getting ready. George Lucian from Full Force, uh, their their father, would come over to the house and rehearse with me and make Mm -hmm. sure I was coming from the diaphragm and that I was speaking up and speaking out and had some rhythm and so on and so forth. And I once... I actually had a manager when I was in the group and he tried to make us pay for the studio. And it's just like, okay, this isn't working. Mm -hmm. In any case, the guy that I grew up with rapping with in school, he was signed to first priority music. And Mm -hmm. so he called me and said, do you want to go? This label wants to check out a female MC. Do you want to go? And I was like, sure. Um, At the time, I didn't even know it was an audition. I just Mm -hmm. thought I was going to meet the people. I did have my rhyme book. And once I got to Staten Island on that ferry, that very cold night, it probably was like 10, 15 below. I get there. It's like nine guys in a studio. The boiler is down there making noise. You know, they're kicking the boiler so it could stop making noise. <laughs> it's uh, a Tascam with four tracks. It's a, a hanger with a stocking over it as your popper, your pop guard. Mm-hmm. And... They would put on a couple of tracks. Hey, rhyme to this. And then I would rhyme to that. And they said, okay, what's that rhyme about? And I said, say, okay, does it go with this track? And then they would put a track on. And then I said the rhymes to I Cram to Understand You. Mm-hmm. And Milk started making the beat right there. So mm. he made the beat as I was rapping. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. You mentioned the rhyme book a few times. Obviously, so much lighter rock came can you describe the actual rhyme book. book, what it looked like? What was your process of writing in that book? And how did even like the lines sort of look in that notebook? It was a black and white composition book, mm. uh, much like that, you know, we we would use in school. I think they still make them. I haven't right. seen them in a while, but I'm sure that they do. My um, son got one in, in, his, in his room. So we, okay. yeah, yeah. The lines inside are green that you write on, mm-hmm. if I can recall properly, mm-hmm. green or a light blue. And I just had poetry, short stories, rhymes. I had everything in there. Um, and anytime I had a thought of any kind, I would put it in there. But I'm, I'm glad I kept it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mother pushed me to write. I had to write essays for everything that I wanted to do if I wanted mm-hmm. to go see Greece at the movie theater. <laughs> right. If I wanted to go to Latin quarters, if I wanted to go play handball, it, you know, she studied to be a teacher. So everything was about, can you write it? Can mm-hmm. you convince me? Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I enjoyed writing. And that's where the impetus for the book came. I want to lay out some of the credits for this album and some of the accolades. Light as a Rock peaked at number 50 on the Billboard um, top black albums list. It's been 16 week on, weeks on the charts. It's included in the source's 100 best rap albums of all time. And as I mentioned, as everybody knows, it is a certified 
bonafide, undeniable Hall of Fame classic album. When you're putting this album together, what were you looking for, like for validation? What would make you feel like you made a great album? And what did you consider success at the time? Uh, well, you know, you're talking young. So success was like, I made an album. It mm. didn't even matter what it did, you know, or, uh, and the bar for success kept changing. It's like, oh, I just want to get a deal. Oh, great. Okay. Now I want to make a record. Okay. I made a record. I just want it on the radio. Okay. Great. It's on the radio. Okay. I want to do a video. You know, like the mm. wants and the desires for the success of the project and for myself become more and more as time passes. With Light as a Rock, I was happy that we had a record. I had done a photo shoot, mm -hmm. you know, and I had a DJ and we were going all over the place promoting it in record stores and radio stations. Well, not too many radio stations. Yeah, every radio station I think had like two hours of hip hop on a Friday, right. mm -hmm. two mm -hmm. hours of hip hop on a Saturday. Not unless you're in New York and you have DNA and the awesome two and all these guys that were on very, very late on, you know, various broadcasting channels on radio. Um, but yeah, it, I, I don't, uh, I don't know that I had a marker for what was success. I certainly didn't think I needed to sell a whole mm -hmm. lot of records to be successful. That's not until I got in the game. It's like, oh, oh, okay. So this, oh, it's the business, right? right. <laughs> uh -huh. It's the business of music. And if it ain't selling, it's not working. Mm. Mm -hmm. Have you achieved all of your rap goals that you set for yourself? Or is there anything that you still need, you feel like you want to accomplish? Do you feel like you did everything you wanted to do? I'm, I'm unsure. Mm. I'm, I'm uncertain as to whether or not I've done everything I need to do in the genre of hip hop. There might be more to come, mm -hmm. but never say never, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say, yes, I've done everything. And then something happens where I'm like, oh man, I haven't done that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure I can come back on your show and say, look, I changed my mind about this thing. <laughs> <laughs> but for the most part, I've accomplished a lot. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my attention is somewhere else now, which is film and TV. Mm -hmm. um, however, within the TV show that I co-created, we do a lot of music. Mm -hmm. We talk about a lot of music. We even get in the studio and record music. So I still get to, you know, have that little bit of something that has to do with music. Perfect segue. Talk about the show. Talk about this endeavor that you're doing and how it's sort of pushing us to new spaces in hip hop. The name of the show is Partners in Rhyme. Mm -hmm. It's with the uh, AMC All Black Family. Mm -hmm. And Bentley, Kyle Evans and myself, we went and pitched it. And of course, you know, years ago, uh, my brother Wayne Conley, who is a fantastic writer and creator. We came up with this idea together. And I mean, it took about 10 something years for it to dawn on me that it was perfect timing in terms of I didn't need a network to say yes to me on mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. because now we have SVODs. Right. So let me go hook up with Bentley. Mm -hmm. Let's really write it. And then we have a piece of work that we can actually go sell. And literally before we could write it, we pitched it and they bought the pitch. Mm -hmm. So 
The story is loosely based on my life and my niece comes to live with me and she becomes like this overnight internet sensation. And what happens is I'm basically at a crossroad in the first episode where I want a new deal and the record label executive says, no, we're not going to go down that road, but we do want you to work for us. Mm -hmm. We want you to manage talent and guide their careers. And the first person you're going to start with is your niece. Okay. And uh -huh. I'm like, what? Uh -huh. Are you kidding? And you know, there's like a piece of music that I was about to get down to. And now mm. the record label exec is saying, give it to your, give it to your niece. She'll do a great job mm. uh, or write it for your niece. And I think it's a great show that exemplifies true school versus new school. Mm -hmm. And that is explained in certain scenes where I'm like, you know, you can't just get a deal overnight. And they're like, uh, yeah, you can. Right. You know, like <laughs> it's all of these things. Well, that didn't happen in my day. Well, this day is different. So we're constantly in positions where we're teaching one another. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the great takeaway from the show is actually saying it's okay for both schools to exist mm -hmm. and, and that we can have a mutual respect for one another. And I, and I, I believe Big Daddy Kane is a guest on the show. Yes, yeah, second yeah. season, third episode, he shows up as an ex-boyfriend. Do you have any Big Daddy Kane stories from, from back in, in the day? Uh-oh. Um, I just know he was really popular. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, being on tour with the guys, I've seen, like, you know, women wrapped around the hotels trying mm -hmm. to get in there to get to these guys. So... Um, I'm just going to say that he, along with Heavy D and Fresh Prince and Slick Rick and all of them were just, you know, desirable to all <laughs> uh -huh. of the women that they appeared in front of. <laughs> Do you have a favorite tour story? Um, from back then that maybe doesn't, doesn't have to involve the, the ladies around the corner, but do you have, do you have a, right, a favorite right. tour story? You know, a memorable moment for me is, uh, Sinead O'Connor had came out on the road. Um, it was just around the time that I, uh, ended up doing the remix for Put Your Hands on Me, mm -hmm. which was one of her songs. And we stopped, we were on a tour bus and we stopped at a truck stop and we just happened to like, get into a really robust game of Coke Olivia. Uh -huh. you, you know Coke Olivia? No, I no. do not. No, that's, those are outside games. Did you okay. play outside? Uh, look, I, this, this my, I don't know if this is a New York thing. I'm from Mississippi. I don't know if I know Coke You're like, Olivia. we ain't playing outside. <laughs> <laughs> it's Coke hot. Olivia it's is like a form of it. Okay. Uh -huh. You know, so when you catch somebody, though, you have to catch them and keep them long enough to say Coke Olivia, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Okay. <laughs> if they're able to break away, then you don't have them and you got to start all over. Anyway, she was so thrilled watching, you know, us play this game that she got in the game with us. And uh -huh. she just was so excited. I'm sure that, you know, back home in Ireland or some of the other places that she uh, was raised, they had nothing like it. Mm -hmm. That's a memorable moment for her because it really made her happy.
I really want to get into 10% diss. Like, yeah. rap beefs. I wouldn't call this a beef, but rap, you know, disses and all that stuff is like obviously a pivotal part of hip hop things I'm really fascinated with. And, you know, for those who don't know, um, you know, Audio 2 does top billing, huge song. Um, Antoinette and her folks maybe want, you know, approach about doing a response. Soon thereafter, I got an attitude comes out sounding similar to top billing with possibly some jabs thrown at them. And then you are pegged to sort of respond. Is that the full story? Is there something in the background that we haven't, that we don't already know about? No, it, that, you, you pretty much got it. It wasn't Antoinette in the beginning. It was Herbie Lovebug mm-hmm. who produced Antoinette. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she didn't really have anything to do with Audio 2 saying to Herbie, let your people do an answer. Mm-hmm. But there was a group that Herbie Lovebug had, and it was three girls. Mm-hmm. And they were actually dancers, but he had signed them to become MCs, and we all knew them very well. And so it was it was a plan that they would do Stop Illin. And then all of whatever you just said was what happened. <laughs> okay. So you hear this song and they, they were coming from Boston. Uh-huh. We're driving in. We got a signal, WBLS, Mr. Magic, and they're playing this song that has the same sample of top billing mm. and makes a couple of jabs. And immediately they're insulted. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you got to do it. We can't. Mm. We go right to the studio, INS on Murray Street, which is very well known for all sorts of artists, but definitely hip hop. And we're there all night. We're there till the sun came mm. up doing this new song. And once we left the studio, it was done. Was there ever sort of a discussion? Did you ever get a full explanation about exactly what happened? Did Herbie Lovebug and them have a a defense of what they did? Or was it just known that they just took the beat and made a response to it? Yeah. um, I don't know. Perhaps Milk and Giz did. Mm -hmm. But we did do a huge show in Atlanta. And I was in my dressing room and... You know, somebody knocked on the door and K-Rock went to get it. And then he came back and he was like, it's Antoinette. And I was like, like the Antoinette? He was like, yeah. <laughs> I said, and she wants to come here? He's like, yeah. I said, let her in. And so that was the first time that we had seen each other since like 1989. When was this when she came to the... This was about maybe five or six years ago. She was on the same tour. I okay. mean, not tour, but show. We had a spot date. Mm-hmm. And it was about 10 different female MCs, and she was one of them. Wow. And so we had a really good talk, and, and she said, ironically enough, that there was nothing in her record that made any suggestion that she was talking about them. Mm-hmm. However, years later, in 99, I dated a guy that told me he wrote some of the rhymes for that record. Mm, mm -hmm. So the truth is, she wouldn't know what was behind something that was written. Mm -hmm. I remember, this is funny, I remember um, LL wrote and produced a record for me 
in 97 or something like that. Mm. Yeah, 97, I think. And it had a line. I mean, I'm just rhyming. Right. Sounds mm. hot. Mm. I'm at a club one night and Method Man, a, a, you know, comes up. What up, Light? What's going on? Yo, what up with that line, knowing that record? I was mm. like, what line? And then he says the line and I'm like, oh, that was, that's talking about you? He was like, yeah, that's my AKA or whatever. And I was mm. like, see, sometimes you're fighting people's battles and you don't <laughs> right. even know. You know, I was really caught off guard by that. And then, of course, I had to say something to LL, like, you wrote that line? You used me. Mm. <laughs> He's like, you be all right. Like. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy, like, why was he making these Which lyrics guy? about you? The guy you were dating. Sorry. Oh, oh the guy. Well, yeah. well, because he was one of the writing people on the staff mm -hmm. of. Okay. Herbie Lovebug. Mm. And so it was a few of them there. So it could have been personal to one of them to want to say something that was like a jab. You know what the thing is for me is when I record, if there's even an inkling that someone can get the wrong impression, one that is opposite of what it is that I am trying to convey, I change the line. Mm -hmm. It's too much at stake to make a mistake and say something you're a writer. Think of mm -hmm. something else, you right. know, come up with another way to say that so that people aren't looking at you as if you're not, you know, coming to the table to respond to something. Just the name 10% Diss is just such a dope name, especially like the idea of like, it's only 10% of what I could have done. That's like such a threatening, <laughs> insulting <laughs> name for a song. You know, you got 90% yeah. more. Did you ever write any, like, is there an 11%? Is there 15% yeah. you write anymore, <laughs> anymore no. of that when you were doing anything? No, done. Done, done. in the water. Uh -uh. You know, the other thing about 10% disc that is super interesting is that obviously the first line, you know, hi damn ho, here we go again, is one of the most sampled lines in all of hip hop. I mean, you go online it says that the song has been sampled at least 60 times in hip-hop do you have a favorite sort of song that sampled it that you've heard through the years mm. well of course the two that are most notable to me are Lil Kim and Foxy and then I think Snoop mm -hmm. I think I might have a plaque from Ricky Ross mm -hmm. for for uh, saying it or using it in some capacity but no, I don't have a favorite. I'm just glad that it made an impact, the impact that it did. It's interesting because I didn't realize, I, I didn't even put the two and two together, that also Tupac, uh, well, the Outlaws used it and hit him up um, mm -hmm. when they were talking mm -hmm. about Biggie. Like, this is probably, this is like one of the definitive lines in hip hop, and especially when we talk about when you're dissing folks too, you know, it sort of has that, yeah. that legacy. I've seen also. a list. It's a uh -huh. long list of people who have either said it or sampled it. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, but there's also so many phrases from the album as a whole that became sort of these, you know, things that we repeat in hip hop all the time. And just lie of the rock, I cram to understand you, you know, as we mentioned, the 10% diss itself and the line. And they just became common catchphrase in hip hop. Even later, you know, roughneck became something that everybody said. Everybody was saying roughneck when it came out. Mm -hmm. um, and you have this ability to just say fly and catchy phrases and make people want to repeat it. Like, what do you think makes you such a quotable hip hop artist? You know, that's a good damn question because <laughs> I, I get in trouble with my team all the time because I'm talking and they and here they are. Could you just say that like mm. regularly? And I'm like, <laughs> or or regular like, and I'm uh -huh. like, I don't know how else to say it. 
someone else told me, you speak in metaphors. Could you just speak like mm. regular? And I'm, I, I don't know how. It's just that that is how I think. And so it's great to, after all of these years, that's a good thing to be able to make things that are quotable and memorable. And, you know, some of it is just what it is, you know, like roughneck is not a term I made up. It's mm-hmm. a term with all of the Brooklyn dudes that I was growing up with, seeing them drop like hot potatoes, you know, they were gang members. It's like the guy that borrowed my bike from down the block and never came back with it. Mm-hmm. He's still like family, but he's a crackhead. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so with these roughnecks, yeah, they're rough and they look dangerous as shit to somebody else mm. but you in my seventh grade class stop playing you know <laughs> so so i didn't come up with that term roughneck but bringing it to the it's just like madonna she didn't come up with vogue either mm. you know when you see uh, i saw an opportunity at that point to show some homage and some love to the guys that i had grown up with and so i wind up uh using it and i guess people associate with uh, MC Light roughneck. We said all well, the time. Well, Lil Wayne said, I ain't a roughneck. I'm a cutthroat. Right. <laughs> that boy is, he's hot. I'm a Southern dude. You Are you a big Lil Wayne fan? Yeah, I just love his wordplay. You mm. know, he's, he's really one of the best. What are some of the most, you know, memorable moments other than, you know, we talked about Timberset Disc, what are some of the other memorable moments in the studio that you remember recording this album? I remember there were two studios, uh, Such a Sound and Firehouse, that I did a lot of the King of Chill stuff with. Mm-hmm. So we did Paper Thin, Light as a Rock, Light versus Vanna White. And I say Light as a Rock, Milk, Milk and Giz did the original and King of Chill did the remix. Mm-hmm which became well-known because the remix was actually the song that was used for the video. Mm-hmm. I remember the videos. I remember doing Paper Thin, and we went to the um, Astor Station in Manhattan to do the exterior stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the interior stuff was done at a train museum in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I remember D-Nice coming down. I remember April Walker and DJ Jazzy Joyce were on the train with our little Time Mock lookalike. We were trying to get Time Mock, but mm. we couldn't get him. And I just remember Cedric, who played the leading man. I remember having a lot of fun on that video. I remember the Jettas. I remember the Nike tracksuit that I was wearing and the jacket, the paper-thin light-as-a-rock jacket that was remade again for my performance in 2006 for VH1 Hip Hop Honors. Mm-hmm. I remember being in a studio with Prince Paul mm-hmm. doing MC Light Like Swinging, and I remember him playing plug tuning. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And then he played Princess of the Posse. I was like, oh, <laughs> look, I just gave myself chills. Uh-huh. See chills, those goosebumps. He played Princess of the Posse for us. And then at one point, I remember Pasta News coming by the studio. Mm-hmm. And I got a chance to like really rap with him and find out about the native tongues. And and during that time, we were all so inseparable, mm-hmm. all of us. We were going to 
hip hop clubs. And it wasn't that there were that many, but there was also a guy, Patrick Motsky. He started with promoting parties in Manhattan where the crowd was all white mm-hmm. and we were the only black ones there. It was the Native Tongues, which was the Jungle Brothers, Tribe Called Quest, Queen Latifah, Moni Love, De La Soul, and there might have been one or two other people. But we went to these hip-hop clubs, the Milky Way, the Million Dollar Bar, Payday. Like he would change the names of them and have them in different locations. And we would drink Rolling Rock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> rock. And it was just a, you know, it's it's great for the memories. Webster Hall, it was just a lot. We got done at a young age in the beginning of something that has just become like worldwide. But I remember all of that during Light as a Rock. Obviously you mentioned Pasta News. Today is De La Soul Day. Their music is out on streaming. Finally, after all this time, and obviously we lost, you know, True Gore and all this, you know, um, and and I just want to give you some time to sort of, you know, give tribute to De La Soul, talk about their importance, talk about their their impact and what it means that now we have their music available to everybody. Yeah, I can just say that De La Soul broke the mold. Uh, They started, for me, um, a trend that was so authentic to who they really were, mm-hmm. which is was refreshing and still is. And when I look at groups like Arrested Development and uh, Farside and Souls of Mischief, like I feel like they were certainly inspired by De La to a degree. And what it is that they offered was just, it's okay to simply just be yourself. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're coming from a hip hop world where all of the men or most of them are sort of caught up in being superheroes. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know what? Just now uh, Kanye popped into my head with All Falls Down. Mm -hmm. Those very personal and uh, vulnerable moments that he displays in that song to me are kin to a De La Soul Mm -hmm. because they made it okay. Right. They made it okay. I mean, daisies? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Like, you couldn't tell Melly Mel in a million years that, you know, 10, 15 years down the line, there would be a group talking about daisies. Right. And, <laughs> you know, enjoying the flower child era. Mm-hmm. I'm glad and excited for them, uh, Maceo and Pasta News that the music is online. I wish True Goy would have been here to see Mm -hmm. and really experience the love and the admiration that they've come to have over the years, but has even grown more so because they've been somewhat missing from streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. And so I just wish the best. And I hope that anyone who has not you know, been enveloped in the sounds of a De La Soul tunes in and checks them out on streaming platforms. Absolutely. This is a monumental day in hip-hop, so mm. it's been good that people are re-examining their music. I want to shift a little bit, talk about I Cram to Understand You. It's such a foundational rap song, especially talking about the crack era, right? And when I think about this song, I, I just can't 
help but think about what compels a 12 year old you know, to sort of write about the crack epidemic in this way. It's a sophisticated song to write at that age instead of just being like, well, crack is bad and drugs are bad. Like, it's a heartbreaking story. And talk about the impact of the epidemic on your childhood, specifically living in Brooklyn, and what was compelled you to put this song together like you did. Well, I am a child of story rap. Mm -hmm. I think I said that with Melly Mel and Slick Rick. Specifically with Melly Mel and the message... That song really painted a very vivid picture for me of what the Bronx was like. And I don't think I had been to the Bronx yet. You know, when that record came out in 81, I think, mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't been to the Bronx. The most north I had gone was my grandmother's house in Harlem. And so when he painted that picture, I really felt like... I wanted to be able to do that too. I wanted Mm -hmm. to take a scene and be able to put words to it and help someone understand it without actually seeing it with their eyes. And so with the story of I Cram to Understand You, I liked to joke as a kid, but I was was pretty serious. Mm -hmm. I went to an African school and they didn't have any qualms with laying whatever was heavy right on you. Like Mm -hmm. whatever was real and true in the history of black people in our plight coming from Africa to here, no bars were held. Mm. And so with that, I already had a serious nature about Mm. myself. We had gone and boycotted for Stephen Biko to Mm. be released on the Mm -hmm. United Nations stairs. Mm -hmm. We made our own signs, our own picket signs. I think I was nine. (laughs) Uh With that kind of certainty, I knew that when I got the microphone and I spoke about something, I wanted it to be to my generation about something very important. Mm. Now, the differences between Brooklyn and Harlem for me and my experience is in Brooklyn is where I saw people sell drugs. Mm -hmm. The people that I knew in school, after we would get off from school, they would be on the corner selling drugs. Mm. In Harlem, I actually saw the victims of heroin, Mm, mm -hmm. which was extremely disturbing, not just to see them on the streets laid out or on park benches, unable to sit up, was where my mother worked in Manhattan, Mm. was at the Harlem Hospital. It was in the heart of Harlem. And it also had a rehabilitation center on the third floor. And she worked, I think, on the fourth or fifth, something like that. Mm -hmm. So I had to go through them to get upstairs and to see them in their wheelchairs with limbs um, decayed from, Mm -hmm. you know, it just Mm -hmm. was such a sight that I knew drugs would never be my issue. And I wanted to be able to convey that to my generation so they too would know how selling drugs, taking drugs, hanging with people who do either is bad news. Obviously, we're all our own worst critics. Listening back, what's one thing that you would change on the album if you had the opportunity? I would probably say MC Light Like Swinging. I didn't know what that meant. I think <laughs> I think my <laughs> manager probably should have said, you know, there's many, there's many meanings to this like swinging thing. Uh-huh. But I guess he let me live in my own creativity. And the Mm. whole thing was, it was a play off of the original song. Yeah, I probably would change that title. Mm. (laughs) 
Is there anything else in the album that you think ages the best when you think about the time that's passed since? I think probably Paper Thin. It was actually a poem. That's why mm. it has no hook. Okay. Uh, and there's like a really short part. Mm-hmm. And then there's a very long, but I think it's like 24 bars of mm-hmm. rhymes for the second verse. And I laid it down and King of Chill was just like, okay, let's just leave it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we didn't even think to do anything else to it. Mm-hmm. I perform it whenever I perform. Sometimes I do I Cram to Understand You. Most times I do Light as a Rock. But all the time I do Paper Thin. I want to talk a little bit about um, the relationship between you and your contemporaries at the time. Uh, what was the community of female MCs like back in the 80s? You know, why wasn't collaboration on songs as prominent as it, as it is today? Because like today we see, you know, like Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion, Glorilla, they all oh, do yeah. songs together. Yeah. Record labels want the collaborations. Mm-hmm. Years past, somebody that had you signed to their record label did not want you giving your talent mm. to someone else's situation. And so because of that very reason, there weren't a lot of um, collaborations done. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being one of the main reasons is because they were very competitive. Labels were very competitive. And they felt like if we house and do our own, we don't need anybody. We don't mm-hmm. need anybody else. So we get to eat off of everything that we distribute. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, it's become a different story. Even I Want to Be Down, you know, everybody was on the same record label except Queen Latifah. Uh And so it was really easy to make the record happen until they had to go get her. And I don't think it was, I'm not saying it was difficult on that side, but it's just now they got to go ask. They Mm -hmm. didn't have to ask over here. It was just like, we'd like you to be on this remix. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know. What were those relationships like on on a personal level with you and Queen Latifah and Salt and Pepper and all that stuff back then, just, you know, in terms of hanging out? Yeah, well, hanging out, I mean, Latifah is my sister, mm-hmm. you know, between mm-hmm. her and MC Peaches and Jazzy Joyce and Miss Melody and Harmony, uh, God rest her soul, um, and Nefertiti and Trouble, rest in peace. We were family. You mm-hmm. know, we moved around the city at the same time. We, Moni Love, you know, Moni mm-hmm. Love and I went to high school together. Uh, we spent a lot of lunches together because we knew a set of twins and I was close to one and she was close mm-hmm. to the other. And so we would all go for pizza and quarter waters. Um, <laughs> but because it was so new and so fresh, there was an innocence to it all. And so us being able to go to the DJ Supremacy Contest and mm-hmm. the New Music Seminar and Jack the Rapper and all of these music conferences that would take place, it was very special. And it was a privilege to be in those rooms and also with people that were doing the right thing. When you found someone in the 80s, a woman on the microphone in mm-hmm. hip hop, that was special because it wasn't a lot. People were looking at it like, why would you do that? Well, mm-hmm. you know... It wasn't lauded or to that degree even respected mm. by other women. And so, you know, obviously there's I Want to Be Down, there's Ladies Night, Cardi B and Meg have WAP. MC Light puts together your own all-female posse cut of all time. Who's on this track? Oh, boy. 
Look, everybody. Everybody get to see two lines. Okay. <laughs> it's We Are the World. Everybody gets half a bar and we all sing the hook. Okay. Like We Are the World. <laughs> Sounds like a classic. <laughs> what is your favorite salt and pepper song? That's hard. Tramp. You're obviously known for your iconic voice. Who do you think has the best voice in hip hop? Oh, I can't say me. <laughs> You're talking, hey, talk, talking shit. Did you put it, say it, say it, if, say it with your chest. If it ain't, I'm going to say salt. Okay. Light as a Rock appears on the Love and Basketball soundtrack. What is the best black romantic comedy of all time? Right this minute, I'm going to say Love Jones. But tomorrow you might get a different answer. And um, the question I love asking people, what is one song from another artist that you wish was yours? That damn Plan B. Mm-hmm. Woo! She smoked that. Plan B by Megan mm-hmm. or Wake Me Up by Remy and Kim. Talk about your your fandom a little bit of the new artists. It's good to hear that you are still listening to the new artists and you've name dropped a bunch and your love for, you know, Megan the Stallion and all those folks. Talk about your love for these MCs and anything you want to bestow on them right now. Well, um, yeah, it's so many that I enjoy, you know, Rhapsody and Tierra Wack and Chica and Dochi and Megan and the City Girls and Cardi mm-hmm. and Nikki and I'm a DJ. So mm-hmm. I, I have to know, you know, what's happening out there and I got to know what people want to hear mm-hmm. and I got to be willing to play it. Right? right, I'm not just a DJ that plays for myself, but I would say to learn how to um, diversify, mm-hmm. but more importantly, because we're talking about women who are in the game already, mm-hmm. I would say never be afraid or ashamed to say that you don't know something. I think we do ourselves a disservice when we are tucked behind this facade of a production company, management company, and you don't know what's happening, but you feel so indebted and so loyal to who it is that you've signed to that you're afraid to step up, step out, and ask a question because, and I'm talking about asking outside of the circle, Mm -hmm. because then it makes you look weak. You know, you Mm -hmm. could look weak. Your group of people that you're with could look weak. But the truth is, if there's a chink in the armor, you need to look and see how it is that you can clear it up and put yourself in a better position so that you're around people that want you to learn. Mm-hmm. Nothing should happen to a young MC that has happened to any of the older ones. And the only way we can make sure that doesn't happen is through communicating. Mm-hmm. And if you let press or media or anyone else, record labels, such, whatever, convince you that everyone older than you is washed up and has nothing to say, has no hit on the chart, so they don't mean anything then you wind up losing mm-hmm. because all it takes is one good conversation and you can walk away with a load of gems that can help change your life. So just be open to communicating and learning. And still at this date, with all of the names that I said, you can still find a mentor, mm-hmm. someone that can be good to you. 
that's advice I'm going to take. I'm going to take some of this advice. Anything else you want to want to talk about? Things you're um, looking forward to going Well, on? HHA, Hip Hop Alliance. Mm. You know, we're a group that's looking out for the benefit of the artist. KRS, Chuck D, Elder Curtis Blow. We have all come together in the name of hip hop for a better system that works for us and with us and not leaving us in the dust. Mm -hmm. But, you know, looking for health plans. We're going to make a lot of moves and you all will hear about it in this 2023. Well, thank you so much for joining us, MC Light. It's been a pleasure. I mean, I'm honored that you're here. You're undeniable legend in hip hop. Thank you for telling the stories behind the making of Light as a Rock. That's it for today. I'm your host, David Dennis Jr. This is Rap Stories. See you next time. This podcast is produced by Podville Media for Anscape, a black-led media platform dedicated to creating, highlighting, and uplifting diverse black stories. Anscape, where blackness is infinite. Dina Morrison is the series producer. Our production team, Brittany Danielle, Rob Spiewak, Lenika Belfield-Martin, Ethan Sands, and Eli Nellis. The series was edited by Stephen Williams, Kelsey Johnson, and Rob Ford. Executive producers, Steve Reese, Elizabeth Elson, and Oscar Zabayos. Raina Kelly is Anscape's vice president and editor-in-chief. David Oku created the original artwork for the series. Special thanks to Tracy Smith, Mike Shahade, Rami Mogadam, Katie Lawson, Beth Stoikov, Anna Grambling, Ashley Melfi, John Gotti, Kelly Evans, Ryan Broadhead, and Kevin Wilson. And I'm your host, David Dennis Jr. Thank you for listening.